This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 130, entitled, The Early Christian View of God in 2 Corinthians. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I hope you are all staying safe, healthy, and in good spirits during these uneasy times worldwide. I personally believe that God is honored when we think deeply about him and his human son, rather than putting our fears in these anxious times in which we live. Hopefully you find these podcast episodes refreshing and a blessing to your faith. This episode will examine 2 Corinthians. Specifically, we are looking to see if God is understood by the Apostle Paul consistently with the Jewish understanding of God as being one person. Or, if Paul has developed his understanding of God in light of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Furthermore, we will look at the person of Jesus in 2 Corinthians to see if he has been included in the identity of God, or if Jesus is distinct from the one God. Lastly, we will look at how Paul regards the relationship between God and Jesus in order to ascertain how the two work together in the lives of the readers at Corinth. 2 Corinthians is a complex document, textually speaking, but these matters won't deter us from our study today. The contents of what we call 2 Corinthians were written to the same community in Corinth as we observed in 1 Corinthians during the middle of the 50s CE. Within 2 Corinthians, Paul offers a benediction from Jesus, God, and the Spirit. Paul also portrays Jesus as formerly being rich, but who has become poor. Are these references indications that Paul believed in a trinity and in the incarnation of the Son of God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point is the Christian portrayal of God in 2 Corinthians. So we'll start off by looking at the person of God to see if Paul remains a strict unitary monotheist or if he has developed his understanding of God in light of the resurrection of Jesus. So in regard to God, the Greek noun theos appears 80 times in 2 Corinthians. It's actually quite a lot. 80 times God remains a major subject in 2 Corinthians. When God is qualified, he is always qualified as the Father. In fact, five times in 2 Corinthians, Paul just casually 
defines God as the Father. In chapter 1, verse 2, God is described as our Father, meaning the Father of the readers of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 3, God is described as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not only our Father, he's also the Father of Jesus. Jesus has a Father. Paul cites from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, in order to declare that God promised to be a Father to you and that we would be sons and daughters to God the Father. Paul says this in chapter 6, verse 18. God is the father of believers, whether those believers are sons or daughters. The one who is blessed forever is called the father of the Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11.31. So that's a second reference to the fact that Jesus has a father. According to Paul's theology, God, specifically the God, is the one who raises the dead. Chapter 1, verse 9. And this naturally would include Jesus as one of those former members of the dead whom God raised. So God is the one who raises or wakes people up from the dead. We can see this elaborated, especially in chapters 4 and 5 within 2 Corinthians, where God is the one that actually is the one who raises. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says that God has prepared for Christians a building, namely a new resurrection body. He says that in chapter 5, verse 1. A few verses later, Paul states that this very purpose... That is, receiving a resurrection body has been prepared by God. Paul says that in chapter 5, verse 5. So God is the one that gives new bodies, because God has already done it to Jesus. Paul helpfully notes that God is the one who anoints. And Paul says that he has been anointed by God in chapter 1, verse 21. Of course, Christ indicates the anointed king. So God is the one who has anointed Jesus, and that same God is the one who has anointed Paul for his apostolic ministry. Paul summons God to be a witness to the fact that initially Paul did not return to Corinth. In doing so, Paul calls God a single witness. This is in chapter 1, verse 23. Now, if God was binitarian, namely two persons in a Godhead, being the Father and the Son, we would expect that Paul would call God witnesses, plural. The same could be said that if God regarded God to be tripersonal, if Paul regarded God as a trinity, then Paul would say that God is several witnesses, at least witnesses in the plural. But this is not what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 23. Paul understands the Christian God to be a single 
witness. It's just very interesting to indicate how Paul understands God as a believing Christian. Now, there is one reference where the Greek noun theos refers to someone other than God. But that other person is not Jesus. That other person is Satan, who in chapter 4, verse 4, is described as the God of this age. Other than Satan, the Greek noun theos is not applied to anyone other than the Father. In regard to temple imagery, Paul regards the body of Christ as the temple of the living God, specifically in chapter 6, verse 16. In doing so, Paul cites, again, from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to remind his readers that God will dwell among us and that, quote, I will be their God and they shall be my people, end quote. These singular pronouns, I and my, indicate that Paul regards God to be a single person. Paul does not alter or expand God into more than one person. Paul seems to agree with the understanding of a single self-God from Second Temple Judaism. The Father, according to Paul, is the Lord Almighty. Paul calls God the Almighty in chapter 6, verse 18. And this is interesting because it is the only New Testament occurrence of the noun Almighty outside of the book of Revelation. And that reference to the Almighty is in reference to God. And, not surprising, Paul directs his prayers to God in chapter 13, verse 7, and specifically this is to the God, with the definite article in Greek. Now, we need to talk about the last verse of 2 Corinthians, which has been used to suggest that Paul actually does believe in a triune God, namely, consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This passage reads, quote, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Chapter 13, verse 14. It's the last verse of 2 Corinthians. If you are looking this up in the Greek, it's going to show up under chapter 13, verse 13, because there's some question earlier in chapter 13 as to how to divide some of the verses. But there are no textual issues taking place in this particular passage. What can we say about this benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians? Well, first of all, if Paul was revealing his understanding of God in a new and unprecedented way, why would he sign off a letter with that massively important redefinition. Why not make this redefinition his main point of argumentation within the body of the letter? To suggest that Paul is evoking a brand new Trinitarian formula in his final words to the Corinthians is so suspect that it seems extremely unlikely.
Second, the Trinity, as it appears in the 5th century, speaks of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul, however, speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a difference in order and a important difference in terminology. I think that's extremely important, and that gets left out in many conversations about this passage. Third, Paul speaks of the God in this benediction as someone distinct from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the fellowship that believers have when they share in the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, on the other hand, states that one God consists of three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul, in this particular passage, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, places God within these three. So these three can't refer to one God if God is mentioned among these three. You can't have Jesus, God, and the Spirit equal one God. The word God there just changes meaning in that particular proposition. Paul is placing God within these three, and so the three do not refer to a single God. The one God is mentioned among the three in the benediction. Fourth, the contents of the benediction are more focused on the blessings of grace, love, and fellowship. Let me reread the passage to get this fresh in our mind. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul wishes upon his readers the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wishes upon his readers the love that comes from God. Paul also wishes that the fellowship that the believers share due to their mutual possession of the Spirit would continually be with them. In other words, the stress is not so much on Jesus, the God, and the Spirit, but on Paul's desire that his readers share in grace, love, and and fellowship. Frank Matera states in his commentary in the New Testament Library series that, quote, the blessing is not an explicit statement of the Trinity as developed in later theology, end quote. Murray Harris has a spell of honesty in a footnote in his commentary in the New International Greek Testament commentary, when he admits that, quote, of course, this affirmation is far removed from any formal doctrine of the Trinity, end quote. Overall, it is quite unlikely that Paul is redefining the monotheistic God of Second Temple Judaism into a tripersonal God in the closing benediction of 2 Corinthians. That's enough about God. What can we say about Jesus in 2 Corinthians? This moves us to our second point. 
Point number two is the Christian portrayal of Jesus in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, we can see the given human name Jesus appearing somewhere between 18 and 19 times due to a textual consideration. So 18 to 19 times for the human name Jesus. The title Christ, which refers to the anointed king of God's kingdom, shows up far more frequently, 47 times. Of those 47 times, six of those refer to being in Christ. And three times we have not just Christ, we have Christ Jesus. The emphasis there on King Jesus. We also have Jesus being referred to as Kyrios, the Lord, 26 times. Within those 26 times, three of them refer to Jesus as our Lord. The Corinthians no longer regard the Emperor Nero as their Lord. Jesus is their Lord. And I have to continue to point this out to people that when Paul says that Jesus is our Lord, it would not have been heard as referring to Yahweh because you cannot say our Yahweh in Hebrew. It doesn't appear that way anywhere in the Old Testament. Lord is a reference to an exalted person. The former Lord of the Corinthians would have been the Roman Emperor at the time of the writing of 2 Corinthians. That person was Nero. The Paul is subverting the imperial claims of lordship and kingship by referring to Jesus, the crucified and risen king, as the true lord of the world. So the most significant stress that Paul makes is on the anointed kingship of Jesus, namely as the Christ. We saw between Jesus, Christ, and Lord that Christ shows up far more frequently than the other designations. And I think the reason for this is that the believer's participation in Christ makes sense of, according to Paul, sufferings in this life. Jesus is the one who suffered and died on the cross. And as the anointed king who represents his people, the followers of Jesus also suffer, but they understand and make sense of their suffering as the people that are represented by the suffering king, Jesus. Paul also refers to Christ Jesus as the Son of God, specifically in chapter 1, verse 19. This passage says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy. So Jesus is still the Son of God. Someone distinct from God, but related to God in a special relationship. Son of God within Judaism referred to the anointed king. But of course, Caesar was understood as a son of God because the father of Caesar was the deified former emperor. Moving on, Jesus is, in 2 Corinthians, always distinguished from God and 
the Greek noun theos is never used by Paul to describe Jesus. In fact, as we've already alluded to, twice in this document, Paul mentions that Jesus has a God. Chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 11, 31. So, despite the exalted status of the man Jesus Christ, Jesus still has a God above him, and, naturally, Jesus remains subordinate to his God. Christ is described in chapter 4, verse 4, as the image of God. Paul doesn't elaborate on this too much more, but it's an interesting designation nonetheless. Paul is unambiguously clear that Jesus truly died on the cross. Jesus truly and wholly died. Paul nowhere tries to qualify the death of Jesus as only partially dying or dying in one nature but remaining alive in a supposed second divine nature. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Chapter 5, verse 14. The one, Christ, died for all. And the all find in the death of Jesus a relationship to their own death, a death relating to their conversion, a dying and rising. Now, we mentioned this passage of Jesus being described as formerly rich but becoming poor. This is a passage in chapter 8, verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Again, that's chapter 8, verse 9. This passage is considered by some to be an implicit reference to pre-existence, to supposedly when Jesus became poor by becoming human. It is not clear to me how such a theology would be used as an argument to get the Corinthians to give money to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapters 8-9 through is a long argument where Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to give money to his apostolic mission. And this example of Jesus, who was rich but became poor, is used as an example to encourage the Corinthians to give. In fact, as I will argue, the reference to Jesus going from being rich to poor indicates his actions on the cross, where the king of God's kingdom gave himself up to die. This is what Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 2, where Christ Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. In that passage in Philippians, Paul expects his readers to think like Jesus tangibly understand what it would be like for someone to give up their life in humility to die for other people.
And Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians is actually much of the same. Paul wants his Corinthian readers to think upon Jesus' self-emptying at the cross as something tangible of an example that would motivate their own cheerful giving. I also want to take seriously how Paul words the reference to Jesus being rich and his becoming poor. Paul begins the passage with a reference to the grace. Quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, dot, dot, dot. End quote. Paul is concerned with a matter of grace that directly relates to Jesus' actions of taking on this role of poverty. So we'll look at some other references to the grace of Jesus within the Pauline letters might shed some light on Paul's thought within our current passage of 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. So listen to how grace is used in some of these other passages. Galatians 2, 20-21. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. There, grace is directly related to the death of Jesus and to Paul's own understanding and participation in the death of Jesus. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, we see much of the same. Paul says, For the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. There in Romans 5.15, the contrast between the death of Adam and the death of Jesus is demonstrated, but the death of Jesus is described with the term grace twice. It's also important to note that Jesus is called a human being there because he's a second Adam. In a few verses later in Romans 5, in verse 21, Paul says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21 There again, we have the death that occurred to sin, and it's related to grace. In fact, there's actually not a single reference to the noun grace within Paul's letters that deals with pre-existence at all. Paul never uses the word grace to refer to any sort of pre-existence of Jesus, even if we expand pre-existence to being the pre-existence of wisdom. The reference to one who became poor, according to the passage, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, a reference to the man Jesus who bears his given human name. That's not the way that you would describe someone who came down from heaven. 
it seems preferable to regard the reference to the grace of Jesus who became poor as a reference to Paul's understanding of Christ giving up his life on the cross as a representative of humanity. And Paul expects that his believers would share in their understanding of Jesus' death and find life out the other side. So that's what Paul says about Jesus. What does Paul understand about the relationship between God and Jesus in 2 Corinthians? This moves us to our third and final point. Point number three is God and Jesus working together in 2 Corinthians. As we've seen in a variety of Paul's letters, Paul will describe the gospel message, the saving good news that was preached and believed, with a variety of terms. Within 2 Corinthians, Paul's gospel is described as the gospel of Christ, and it's also described as the word of God. This, of course, makes sense because God has raised Christ from the dead. And Christ is the anointed king of God's kingdom. So you could describe it as the gospel of Christ and the word of God. Both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ send greetings, as we see in all of Paul's letters. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. In verse 21 of the first chapter, Paul says that he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. God is the one who has anointed us. And of course, God is the one that has established the believers in Christ, in the anointed king. So we have an anointed king and we have God. And God is the one who has anointed the believers. So God has anointed Paul and God has anointed Jesus. That's in chapter 1, verse 21. We continue to see this relationship of the believers interacting with God through Jesus functioning in a mediator role. Consider chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul says, Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. So there again we have the believers going to God, but they do it through Christ. Christ functions as that mediator between God and believers. We can also see in 2 Corinthians that God has shared the role of judgment with Jesus. God being the cosmic judge that is going to set everything wrong with the world right on the day of judgment. God has shared this responsibility with the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, with Jesus as the anointed king, the Christ. Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's chapter 5, verse 10, where everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's because judgment has been shared 
with Jesus, specifically Jesus as the king. We know that this is a shared role because in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So God is the judge, but God shares that judgment with his anointed king. Furthermore, we could see the relationship between Jesus and God in chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God reconciles believers to himself through Jesus. Jesus is that mediator role. And of course, God there is described with the pronoun himself, meaning that God is a single person. God is one. The next verse, chapter 5, verse 19, says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. But again, this is God working through Jesus, Jesus being that mediator role in God's salvific history. Not that God was Christ, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And again, if the world is being reconciled to himself, to God, then God is a single person. That singular pronoun himself is in reference to God. So, in conclusion, we have observed that 2 Corinthians, while being one of the least favorite Pauline letters among modern preachers, nevertheless has much to say about what Paul thought in regard to God, the person of Christ, and how the two work together. We notice that God, whenever he was qualified, was regarded as the Father. This God was the God and the Father of Jesus. For Paul, God is a single witness to Paul's apostolic ministry. Furthermore, God is frequently described with singular pronouns, which indicate only one person. He is the Almighty God, who declares believers to be his sons and daughters. Second, we observe that Paul portrays Jesus with the given human name, as the Christ, as our Lord, and as the Son of God. Paul does not refer to Christ as Theos. Moreover, Christ has a Father who is the God of Jesus. The most common way in which Paul describes Jesus is by using Christ, and this fits well with much of Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians, where Christ is the representative of his followers. Since Jesus suffered and died, his followers are to see their own sufferings and the death of conversion as making sense in light of being in Christ, as being represented by this anointed king. Jesus truly died, and this fact is not subverted or qualified by Paul to suggest that Jesus had more than one nature. Furthermore, the death of Jesus is likely the meaning of Paul's argument in regard to grace 
that was demonstrated when Jesus gave himself up on the cross for humanity's redemption. Finally, we observe that the relationship between God and Christ is that God was working in Christ and that believers relate to God through Jesus as a mediator figure. God, of course, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Believers are reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. Believers will stand on the day of judgment before the judgment seat of Christ, who himself shares in the role of judgment that originally applied to God alone. Paul's saving gospel message continues to be referred to with multiple designations. And the fact that two of those are the gospel of Christ and the word of God continues to indicate that God has raised the anointed king from the dead. Speaking of the anointed king, Paul states that it was God who anointed believers and, of course, who anointed Jesus. Therefore, there is no indication that the unitary monotheistic understanding of God, which Paul inherited from Judaism, is altered, expanded, or developed in 2 Corinthians. God remains, for Paul, a single person. Jesus continues to remain distinct from the one true God. Jesus is subordinate to the one true God. And Jesus is the beneficiary of the one true God's exaltations. In some, 2 Corinthians exhibits biblical Unitarianism. And 2 Corinthians is incompatible with Trinitarian theology. Join us next week as we look at Romans to see how the risen Jesus is portrayed alongside the only true God of Jewish monotheism. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote these sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, and by writing an honest review on iTunes. If you'd like to donate to the podcast to keep it on the air, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to offer a very special thanks to Dustin Williams for post-production and for his expert editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Until next time... Thanks for listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and you folks, please take care.